Hello, I'm Ryan Boll, a Middle East and North Africa analyst at Stratfor, a rain company. This podcast is brought to you by Stratfor Worldview, rain's premier digital publication for objective geopolitical intelligence and analysis. Mars, the red planet, the planet closest to Earth, the subject of countless sci-fi stories and the focus of intense research and geopolitical competition for decades. You're listening to the Essential Geopolitics podcast from Stratfor, a rain company. I'm Emily Donahue. Both China and the United Arab Emirates have successfully launched missions to Mars, and NASA's Mars 2020 rover mission is set to touch down February 18th. Stratfor Senior Global Analyst Matthew Bay is here to help guide us through these missions. Matthew, welcome. Hello. Can you give us a brief description of each one of these missions? Um, Yes, I can. So the first one to arrive was the United Arab Emirates uh, HOPE mission. Um, It's their first mission to Mars, and it arrived on uh, February 9th. Um, Their plan here is to not necessarily have any kind of a rover or something like that land on on Mars. Instead, they have an orbiter that will be going around Mars and just orbiting the planet for a while and conducting, you know, studies around weather cycles, weather events, things like that. It is, uh, for the UAE, they have become the uh, fifth country to have a Mars mission following uh, the Soviet Union slash Russia, the United States, the European Union, and India. Um, China's mission arrived on the February 10th, so a day after the UAE's making them, giving them the sixth country to have a mission to Mars. Um, their mission is a little bit more complex. They are including a rover, which is set to touch down uh, sometime in May or June. And if they can successfully land the rover, they will become the third country behind the, the U.S. And, and the Soviet Union uh, to successfully perform a soft landing on Mars, which is a lot more uh, technologically uh, challenging than just um, having an orbiter, which is what the UAE did. Um, and then finally, the U.S. mission, um, it's their latest uh, mission to include a, a rover. Um, it'll be the fifth rover mission, actually, for the U.S. It's going to be looking at a lot, a lot of things that are, are, are geared to look at potential future manned mission to Mars. So it's going to be looking at things like things that could be you know, supporting you know, local life on the, on the planet, mainly you know, smaller than human life. But it's something that is going to be used for, for groundwork research into uh, future potential uh, manned missions to Mars down the road. Finally, all three of these are arriving now because you can only do, or it's most efficient to do, launches to Mars basically every 26 months, just that's when the distance between Earth and Mars is the smallest. Um, There was actually a fourth mission to Mars that was supposed to be also uh, joining them that's being launched by um, the European Space Agency and and, and the Russian Space Agency. Um, That one actually just got delayed until the next potential launch window, which isn't for a few more years. Um, but that is just highlighting, you know, there's a lot of interest by a number of dif- different space agencies um, on the Red Planet. Well, one of the missions that I found the most interesting is that of the United Arab Emirates. I mean, this is one of the first high-profile space exploration missions from that country. And I'm just curious how their space program fits into the overall larger techno-economic strategy there. Right. So what's interesting about the UAE's program is that unlike um, a lot of other programs that we see, uh, it wasn't one that was fully integrated where um, the UAE was looking at ways to build its own rocket. Um, For example, most of the the rocket that they used was a Japanese rocket. Um, They also weren't entirely isolated in in developing the 
um, the orbiter itself. Uh, it was actually assembled in the United States. Um, but what they are viewing their entire space program is, it really is reaching for the stars in, in a, a educational slash science and technological development uh, process uh, for the UAE. It, they want to use the program as a high-profile example of trying to get Emiratis to go into, you know, STEM or so science, technology, ed, uh, education platforms and mathematics, etc. Um, they're looking at uh, trying to also uh, piggyback on, you know, even longer term goals like establishing a Mars colony sometime in the in the 22nd century. It's all designed to really push UAE students into going into the, the hard sciences. Um, for the UAE, this is actually very critical for their long term strategy of trying to develop economy that's not as you know, based on, um, say, oil and gas, um, not as based on just trading. They really do want to um, set up uh, the UAE, Dubai, et cetera, as a, a, a hub for um, innovation and technology advancement in the Middle East. And they're using um, their space program as a way of doing that. Matthew, as I mentioned in the lead up to this conversation, the United States and China, this is part of their efforts to one-up each other (laughs) geopolitically, but with not just the exploration efforts to Mars, but the moon. How do their respective space strategies fit into this broader geopolitical science and technology competition? Right. So both China and the United States are viewing um, their space programs as critical ways to to foster um, both uh, innovation for cutting-edge technologies. Um, for example, um, China has has used it to um, develop some of their quantum communications um, platforms. Uh, this is an area of, that is used in cryptography, for example, and encryption um, that would be virtually unbreakable when it comes to communications domestically. Uh, but they've used their space program as a way to further test those into space applications, which can then have direct implications on, on, on Earth. Also, the United States is viewing it as a way to develop also uh, potential long-term missions to to Mars or, or or the Moon that can then be used to be, for example, um, essentially basing operations for the development of asteroid mining resources, things like that. China's also looking at that. Um, so there is a lot of reasons as to why both countries are viewing each other as a rival in space development. And this does, of course, have um, applications back here on Earth, has uh, applications in, in orbit, has applications, you know, beyond Earth's orbit as well. China has also been very nationalistic in its approach. Um, while it is partnering with um, other space agencies at times, they are really trying to have an integrated um, development cycle where they are the ones that are designing everything from the rocket to all the way to whatever um mission they are trying to finalize when it comes to construction. Um, This is about their own development of a wide array of technologies that can then have direct applications, for example, the jet engines um, on ballistic missiles or cruise missiles, etc. The United States has also taken a a bit more of a collaborative approach, generally working with a number of different space agencies. Um, However, the exception to that is, of course, China, where um, the so-called Wolf Amendment, which was a, a, a policy that was implemented in U.S. law in 2011, um, essentially bars NASA from actually cooperating with the Chinese space program. But moving forward, you are going to see both China and the U.S. really start to accelerate the potential development of their exploration activities for, for Mars and, and the Moon. The question of whichever country tries to develop resources first, or I guess in the case of the United States, what private companies might develop resources in space first, that's really going to become a big geopolitical issue. And when you talk about can you govern or regulate 
um, any kind of asteroid mining or moon mining, et cetera, uh, when it comes to the applications of that down the road. But given, as we've seen in the recent past, um, the Soviet Union and, and the United States were locked in a, in a space race for you know, 20, 30 years. Um, the same is true right now between the U.S. and China. Um, it's a little bit different given the fact that the U.S. is, of course, the more established uh, space explorer than China is. And China by no means is, is even though this is their first mission to, to Mars, China is by no means a, a new entry to space exploration. But it is something where now um, we're starting to see new technologies and just like, for example, just the decrease in costs that allow rockets to be launched and getting a certain kind of a, a certain amount of mass to 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 orbit those costs have gone down which has opened up a bunch more of applications that weren't there you know 20 or 30 or 40 years ago a big part of that of course has been the success of SpaceX but it's also because of uh, it's also in part because of China's own um, space program Matthew this is all very exciting to hear but space exploration is expensive and there are those who question its utility particularly during a pandemic and the sluggish economic activity globally. Maybe you could explain some possible implications and innovations of such missions, both here on Earth and more broadly in space. Yeah. So like I mentioned earlier, um, China's example where they were using a mission, it was more only to the U.S.'s orbit, to test out quantum communications. That can show a direct translation to, to you know, an application of, of secure communications here on Earth. Um, when you talk about, for example, everything that needs to go into um, the communication arrays that would need to be set up in order to communicate on the far side of the moon or communicate to Mars, etc., um, those require a lot of um, research into just other forms of communication. So these are things that do have a direct impact of, of back here on Earth. Um, one of the examples that I'd like to bring up when people ask this question um, I went to a seminar maybe seven or eight years ago now where it was looking more, not necessarily at a, a trip to Mars, but a 100 years manned space mission. And one of the keynotes was centering around how do you do the laundry? Because you have to think about the self-containment of a laundry of, of laundry services uh, for 100 years. Where are you going to get all the soap, the water, etc.? When you think about it from that kind of a, of a standpoint, some of those technologies that they are going to have to develop for a, a long-term uh, mission to Mars, when you talk about, you know, uh, things like the human life habitat situation, food, etc., those are clearly going to have, you know, domestic applications here in, in on Earth uh, when it comes to a lot of those different industries, whether it be things like, you know, laundry, something, something as basic as that, or something that's more complex. Well, I remember uh, solar panels and microwave ovens from the old Apollo days, right? Yep. Also, another another one is um, zippers. Zippers were also originally designed for space applications. Boy, Matthew Bay, I could continue talking about this all day. This is one of my favorite topics. Thank you so much for that guidance. Thank you, Emily. Matthew Bay is Stratfor's Senior Global Analyst. You can read more about the geopolitics of space missions at Stratfor Worldview. Sign up for our free newsletter for the latest. Go to worldview.stratfor.com. That's worldview.stratfor.com. I'm Emily Donahue. Thanks for listening.